Welcome to the Fluent Conference 2018 Speaker Series. I'm your host, Kyle Simpson, and with me today we have Brian Holt, who is a Senior Cloud Developer Advocate at Microsoft, where he's all about developers, developers, developers. Previously, he was a JavaScript engineer at Netflix, LinkedIn, and Reddit. But when not working, Brian finds time to teach on front-end masters, run his mouth on front-end happy hour, travel all over the world, and play with his adorable dog. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invite to be here. We're excited to speak with speakers and teachers for this upcoming Fluent Conference to give our audience an idea of what to expect. And so I want to dig into that. I know we have you doing both a workshop for the conference as well as a conference talk, and those will be fun to dig into. But before we get there, just help us understand in in a brief sense, how did you get into this whole software development thing and specifically into JavaScript? Yeah, it's kind of a windy road for me. I learned to code a little bit as a kid. My brother would make me write C++ before he would let me play video games. At the time, I thought he was a huge jerk, and obviously uh, it didn't work out for me, and so now I'm very upset with him. No, I'm, I'm, uh, it really, uh, really helped out. But when I got to college, I started studying other things like Italian literature for a while. I studied biology, some various other things before I kind of realized at some point, you know, I could make money doing this as opposed to paying someone else to teach me. I could, you know, be paid to learn it. And so I dropped out of college and got a job uh, with a local company in Salt Lake City. And then just through various means, I actually started out as a PHP developer, believe it or not. And through various means, I ended up as a senior front-end developer, not knowing any really JavaScript. And so I panicked and learned as, uh, as much JavaScript as I could. And kind of from there, I went and worked at, you know, Reddit and Netflix and LinkedIn and now Microsoft. I think a lot of us can identify with the windy road. It's rare, I think, these days to find someone whose path was sort of very straightforward, progressing. Oh, I did this and then I did that. We sort of kind of find our way in this industry. And I think there's some interesting parallels to JavaScript itself. And I want to dig into that when we talk a little bit about React, for example. So your workshop is the complete introduction to React. And if I'm correct on this, this is the third time that you've given the workshop for Fluent. Is that right? Yeah, this is actually the third time. Uh, It's been completely different every single time, totally rewritten from the ground up. And this is actually my, will be my fourth revision of uh, this particular workshop. And I would say this is probably the biggest rewrite yet. We're totally changing the entire application that we're going to be building. It's not really going to share very much groundwork with the previous one just so that it can be totally up to date and you know us- utilizing features that are new in react. So I guess you could say your process of building this workshop and evolving it and even rewriting it over time has taken a similar kind of windy path. So talk to us about the parallels of what's happening with the react ecosystem changes. I know there have been some recent new additions and some potential changes. So how how is that impacting react developers and how is it impacting how you're teaching those developers? Yeah, uh, you know, React's had the good fortune of being a pretty stable library. You know, pretty much from when I started writing it, which is, I think it's got to be over four years ago at this point, to now, it's the API really hasn't changed too much. Uh, we had, you know, we moved from React.create class to using ES6 classes and functions and things like that. So that there's been some minor revision, but for the most part, it's been pretty smooth sailing. Not, not too many application rewrites at this point. And you know what major changes they did do the React core team releases code mods that you know automatically refactor as much of your code as they can safely do. 
uh, which has always been really, really nice. You know, it makes these upgrades pretty painless. However, from, from React 15 to React 16, it was a total rewrite of the internal application, even though it was API compatible, you know, re re rewrites just entail bugs. Like that's just kind of the, the reality of the situation. But now with, as we're moving to React 16.3, they're starting to unlock the new potential of this new architecture, which they're calling the fiber architecture, as opposed to the stack architecture, which is what it was called previously, that the rendering of your React application can actually be asynchronous and it can be broken up into pieces. And you know, you can start rendering some subtree of your application and say, you know what, this isn't ready yet. We can pause it and we're going to go finish rendering other pieces of it. There's lots of really new cool abilities that they're unlocking. And so uh, that's one of the reasons I chose to totally rewrite this this time is I wanted to show off some of these new functionalities that were not previously possible with older versions of React. I love what you're saying, which kind of highlights one of my favorite things about being a teacher, which is that teaching is all about learning. And in a sense, you have to keep learning and learning better how the system works, how the ecosystem works. So even if they didn't rewrite something, even if they didn't change the API, you're approaching things in a different way. And I think that keeps things exciting for the audience and it. And it's a reason why even if somebody has come to this same titled workshop from you in the past or watched it on Front End Masters, there's a whole bunch of new stuff for them to get. And I think that's that's an exciting perspective. So what would you say would be the kind of top one or two things that an attendee of this new version of the workshop can expect to get from Fluent 2018? Yeah, I mean, the, my entire methodology for developing this this particular workshop is, uh, I want you to understand not only React itself, which is a library with like 30 methods. You can be taught React by itself in a vacuum, you know, in, in an afternoon. But I want you as the attendee to understand the entire ecosystem around React. I want you to understand Webpack and Babel and all these different tools that go into it because when I was learning React a long time ago, it was a total mystery. And like when things were going wrong with my tools, the first thing I would do is get really upset at my tools and say, this is dumb. I don't like this. I wish it didn't have it. I wish I could just go back to writing, you know, stuff in a script tag, um, you know, kind of long for those old days. But what I actually do is I walk you through every pain point of like, okay, we're going to build this with no packaging, no Babel, none of these different things. We're going to write it just, you know, raw React in a script tag. And you're going to see, you're going to feel the pain of like, man, this is annoying. I wish I had something that would, you know, package this all together and not make me have to do it by hand by myself. And at that point, when we introduce the tool to you, so you understand the pain point and then immediately what the remedy is. Because when you introduce tools like Webpack, it introduces more complexity to your application. And as developers, we should strive to have the simplest solution possible. But when you start seeing what sort of ease of use it offers to use tools like Webpack, then you start to embrace your tools and be grateful for them and, and start, you know, yeah embracing your tools as opposed to just fighting against them the entire time. So that's that's kind of my, I guess, the top takeaway from this is that not only are you learning React, but you're also learning the entire ecosystem that, that goes into making React applications. It almost feels like we could be having this conversation about the broader JavaScript ecosystem, even non-specific to a framework, because I think there are a lot of people out there that struggle to understand why the barrier to entry for JavaScript seems to be so much greater these days than it used to be. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the balance and the trade-off, the pros and cons that we're making as an industry by tackling these things like bundling, like linting, like uh, tree shaking, all of those things that we're tackling 
in a tools-oriented and in a process-oriented approach, certainly it means that once that's already built out, you can click a button and sort of sit back and drink a cup of coffee. But what does that mean for somebody to learn? Um, do you feel like the path is almost becoming too difficult for them to pick up? I think uh, a problem as a learner of JavaScript today is you start out with like a hang gliding kind of experience where you just like, it's a really simple apparatus and you write, you know, some for loops and things like that. And you get this really, you know, cool sample application. And then right after you, you know, do that, we expect you to pilot a, a Boeing 787, right? Like it's this huge complex beast that you, you're just thrown into the deep end and you say, well, I hope you can land this thing, right? That's, that's what it feels like to me. To be honest with you, that's kind of what my learning experience even felt like uh, coming into these tools. And now I have years of experience behind me that I feel okay with them. But that middle ground is often lost to people. Like, how do I get from total beginner, uh, you know, writing for loops to bundling my entire application, doing tree shaking, all these kind of buzzy words that everyone says, like, you must do this or you're a bad developer. What's that middle ground? And so, you know, I think some strides are being made there. And I think it's on particularly us as teachers to kind of help people find it. Like there's libraries like Parcel, which I think is a, an amazing library that kind of does bridge that middle gap. There's like, hey, here's this pretty magical tool that if you just point this at your index.html, it'll just kind of figure out what your application looks like and build it for you. So I think uh, there's middle grounds there and we should be helping newer developers kind of figure out these kind of easier tools to kind of get going with before they start feeling comfortable, you know, hopping into the cockpit of that 787. Well, it's awesome to hear that you have that perspective. And you and I, I you know, we're such good friends, I think, because we do often align so well in those thoughts. And I, I'm, I'm totally with you there. I'm curious, though, when someone comes to one of your workshops and you indoctrinate them in these ideas and you help them understand it, what tools do they walk away with to go convince the rest of their team and convince their boss that all of this additional stuff this additional complexity is worth it. How do they make that case to the other people who maybe aren't sitting in your workshop? I really hope that I'm showing them a couple of things. One, the trade-offs. Just if you use this tool, you're adding this sort of complexity, but we're getting this kind of benefit out of it. And I think for me personally, like when I was earlier in my career and I wanted to you know, adopt SaaS, that's a battle I remember having. I just, it was new and shiny and people told me that it was cool. And so I went to work and said, hey, I want to I want to introduce SaaS to our stack. And they're like, okay, why? And I was like, I, I don't know. Like, it was this kind of like, I just know that other people are using it and I, I want to use it too. But hopefully coming away from my workshop, you can say, I want to use Webpack because we're going to be able to do these sort of packaging techniques and we're going to be able to cut down our bundle size, and which means we're going to be able to load our website faster. And so being able to really speak to the, uh, how these tools work or, or same thing with React, like it's going to, you know, produce maintainable UIs or those sorts of trade-offs in, in these people's heads. And then hopefully the other thing I want people to walk away with is I'm going to show you a, some sort of stack to work with React. It's an opinionated stack just by the fact that in order to build a stack to work with React, it, it has to be opinionated in some manner. However, there are alternatives that I'm not showing you that, you know, you don't have to use Webpack, for example. You can use Parcel. Like there are, there are other trade-offs that can be made here. And along the way, I'm also going to say, like, you know, today we're going to be using this technology. But just so you know, you can also slot in technology A, technology B, or technology C if you have these, you know, various opinions. So hopefully you can kind of walk away with 
ideas of like, okay, well, we use SaaS at work, so this is how we're going to integrate SaaS here because Brian taught me this is the connection point for it. I think that's fantastic stuff. You know, I'm, I'm curious, as you start talking about all the amazing things that React ecosystem apps can do and all the amazing tools that exist in, in the broader JavaScript community that help us build these great apps, uh, it feels like we're also running up against the tension of what that means to the end user. When the end user used to just be able to download a simple HTML page and the content was right there immediately, it started rendering within you know a couple of microseconds or milliseconds and they could read stuff pretty quickly. And now it sort of feels like we've got to wait for a whole application system to kind of bootstrap itself. So segueing into the other talk, the, the talk that you're giving for Fluent, you're talking about web performance. And I think the talk is called 10 kilobytes or bust. So tell me about that and about the tension that exists between all the great things that we'd love to be able to do with applications, but what it means to the end user if they're waiting for all of that to download. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge tension. I, I, and I kind of now realizing the irony of that I'm giving a talk called 10 kilobytes or bust, yet I'm teaching a workshop about a 30 kilobyte library. So I, uh, that's on me. I, I accept that. It's important that you think about these kinds of things because you, you are unintentionally limiting your audience by, by these sorts of techniques that you use. If you have a, a two megabyte web page, you're just not going to be able to load in on 2G in India or even just 2G in the middle of you know rural Montana, which is where I'm from. And you may not be necessarily cognitively making that choice. And maybe your application is very useful to those sorts of people, but you've just limited them out of using your application just by, you know, having too big of a website, having too slow of a website. Or, you know, the, uh, data can be quite expensive in these rural areas or in, you know, uh, other countries. So these are things that I kind of want to call to, to people's attention is like, you know, you need to know your audience. You need to know who wants to use your application, who's trying to use your application. And that's partly by just you knowing your application, right? Like if you're, you know, selling gold-plated planes, yeah, you can probably have a three megabyte website and, and no one cares because everyone that has that is going to have really fast internet connections. But if you're trying to, I don't know, connect doctors to rural areas, yeah, that better work on uh, really, really slow internet. And so part of that's running analytics and part of it's knowing your product. And I'm um, hopefully I'll get people thinking about who my target audience is, what analytics can I look at to determine that. And then I'm going to give you a bunch of techniques that don't necessarily necessitate rewriting your application. Some of them will, but some of them will just be things that you can look at, particularly with a, a bit of an eye towards Webpack and Babel, but even beyond that, we'll talk about things that are not necessarily specific to Webpack and Babel so that you can get some easy free wins that maybe you don't know that exist. Yeah, certainly a lot of the best tooling that's been created has been tooling that tries to automate some of that stuff for us. We already talked about tree shaking, for example. And uh, if you're using that and using that well, and if you structured your system well, with your imports and your exports, then the system, these tools can figure out whole swaths of the code base that don't need to be shipped or at least don't need to be shipped now. And that can certainly get you closer. What I hear you kind of saying is that 10 kilobytes, rather than that being like a metric that we should judge a site by, it's more like a direction that we should aspire towards, that we should always be mindful of the size. And, and what I'm struck by specifically with that is that it always feels in these kind of conversations that we talk about people who are on 2G 
and I'm using air quotes here, that people who are on 2G are automatically the less fortunate folks that are out in, you know, some rural Montana, like you said, uh, or in a third world country. But, uh, you know, my personal experience is that when I travel and I travel frequently internationally, just last week I was in London, which is very much a first world um, urban city with all of the advancements of technology. They have great technology, but because I'm an American over there in London, I'm on a roaming data plan and my roaming data plan gives me unlimited data, but at 2G speeds. So I automatically feel like even though I'm what I would definitely consider to be among the privileged elite in terms of my access to internet, if you take me and put me on a plane for a few hours and I fly over to London, I'm not in that same context anymore. I have the same device with the same capabilities. I have the same apps. I have all the same interests. But now all of a sudden, I can't access those things in the same way. And it's incredibly painful to be able to load up, for example, refresh a Twitter page almost instantaneously on my home internet. But when I'm standing out waiting you know, in the rain for a bus in London, and it's like 20 or 30 seconds sometimes to refresh a page. Yeah, that's really painful for sure. So one of the things that I think is great about you giving a talk like this is to remind people that uh, we often get in this bubble mindset of, oh, everybody that I think of that's a customer of mine, they are going to be on fast, you know, United States Internet and not have any trouble at all. But really, the, the reality is that a lot of people are mobile. A lot of people are in scenarios. Our devices can be low battery and that low battery can sort of throttle down the radio signal strength on a phone. And now all of a sudden, somebody that 10 minutes ago had a great connection, same location, but now maybe they, they don't. And so I'm curious if you can sort of share for the, the listener, maybe just the, the one or two insights that you expect us to be able to get that help us move outside of that bubble and think about uh, that idea that the web application does need to work in sometimes very different scenarios. Yeah, for sure. One of the things kind of spoiler alert that I talk about in my talk is at, at the time when I wrote this uh, talk for the first time, I was working at LinkedIn. And so I, I load the LinkedIn home feed using 2G and I make the audience watch the entire thing. And it's painful. And I absolutely insist that no one bring out their phone, that they have eyes glued on the uh, this painful, painful experience. It, I think it takes about a minute and a half to load LinkedIn on 2G speeds. Now, this isn't fair. This is not a fair comparison because typically you would not be loading the desktop experience on 2, 2G speeds, but uh, that's okay. It's for effect. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then after that, I, I immediately show them a website, trebo.com, T-R-E-E-B-O, which is a, if I'm understanding correctly, I think it's kind of a uh, affordable hotel chain in India. And it loads on 2G speeds. You see something within a second and a half, and the entire thing completes loading in 12 seconds, which is just unbelievable. And it's just, it's all using tools that we have that it's probably already in your stack. It's not that they're doing something absolutely insane. It's just they're intelligently applying various techniques uh, to kind of get these uh, really, really low initial page loads, loading something that the user can immediately start seeing something in front of them and start deciding that what they want to do with your website. And then by the time that they've made a decision, 
uh, to interact with your website, they kind of have an idea. And hopefully by that point, you're interactive. So web performance is as much a psychology game as it is a technical problem. It's, it's putting things in front of your user to make them feel like that it's loading really quickly, that they can begin thinking about interactions, which takes, you know, at the bare minimum, a half second to under- understand something and then decide what you want to do after that. And then just kind of uh, intelligently making things uh, interactive as soon as possible. Exactly like I asked a little while ago about the React workshop, the reality here is that an attendee of this talk at Fluent is going to get all excited about, yes, 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 we need to drive down the size of our web pages, but they're going to go back to a company that has lots of stakeholders that don't understand those sorts of trade-offs. So how do we have these kinds of conversations within our teams and within our companies to help them understand the importance of those kinds of techniques? Uh, I'm probably going to get someone fired. (laughs) But a lot of these techniques, I just applied and I didn't tell people. I just started making changes and it was invisible enough to people that things just started getting faster. And I just kind of, instead of saying, hey, uh, you know, I want to switch this Babel plugin for this one, I just like, I just did it and said, check it out. And that's kind of been a theme for me for a lot of my career. Uh, It has gotten me into some trouble sometimes. So uh, apply with uh, uh, prejudice. But uh, some of these things will hopefully be just easy wins that uh, you won't have to do really too much to. And then beyond that, hopefully I'm explaining the reasons behind why you'd want to do things like, you know, code splitting or switching your framework or or some of these various different, uh, you know, bigger hammer techniques that are going to drive down your page load that you can go to the stakeholders and say, look, we're an e-commerce website. It's been proven that if you have faster page loads that you sell more things. Like it's, it, you just make more money. Beyond that, you're going to have happier developers that can move faster, which is always a good thing as well. So you don't have to do more hiring or, or other things like that. So kind of the combinations of all these various uh, you know, net positives will give you enough leverage to ask your stakeholders for, for time to uh, accomplish these things. So for summarizing here, Brian Holt says, go break stuff and don't ask for permission. Do I have that kind of correct? That's absolutely correct. Okay, giant thumbs up. <laughs> Okay, I've I've done it. So that's that's great. I uh, I look forward to hearing the reports back from our attendees as they try to apply those techniques within their own teams. Uh, yeah, that yeah. should be fun. All right, so Brian, you are a uh, an OG, as it will for Fluent Crowd, and uh, and I think you have some great perspective on Fluent. I'm so thankful that you're going to be giving this workshop and this talk. Uh, do you have any parting thoughts for potential attendees, those that are thinking about it, maybe? Uh, wondering if they can convince their boss. What do you think is the best one or two reasons why somebody should come to Fluent 2018? I, I would say a lot of my like early breaks in my career were specifically because I came to, to Fluent. That I met a bunch of really interesting and cool people. Uh, specifically, the organizers at the time, uh, Simon and Peter, great people. Uh, and beyond that, just uh, the attendees that were there, people from Google, people from you know Netflix and Microsoft and even smaller startups that, that actually, I still talk to some of the people that I met on my very first day at my very first Fluent. Um, so it's just a high density of people that are already doing really cool things and people that are about to do really cool things. And yeah, just having that kind of high high collision kind of density of people in one place, is, it's, a, it's a place that you want to be for sure. That's really well said. And I appreciate that. I think that's a great note. 
to sort of finalize our discussions around Fluent. I'll just remind listeners that Fluent tickets are on sale. We've got great prices available through, I think, the first week of May. So if you're listening to this, make sure you get a ticket as quickly as possible. Make sure you sign up for Brian's complete introduction to React Workshop and also mark on your schedule that you want to be there. It is 10 kilobytes robust web performance talk and enjoy all the rest that we have. We've got a fantastic program. I've been to every Fluent and while I'm biased as a co-chair, I really genuinely believe this might be the best program we've ever had um, to kind of bring these conversations up to the surface. There are things that happen in lots of disparate places across the industry, but I think what Fluent stands for is collecting all those conversations in one place and asking us all to talk about what we're doing and what our responsibilities are. So I am so thankful. I, we're blessed that we've got Brian to be part of this. So thank you for sharing those thoughts, Brian. As we wrap up, I just wanted to ask if you've got a pick for our listeners of something that they should be thinking about um, in the upcoming weeks. Yeah, I got uh, I got two quick ones. One of them is an album that is out today. is called Downtime by the band Young Galaxy. It's just really good, great coding music. Definitely would suggest checking. And then the other thing is, which I've been working on with for work, which I really quite enjoy, is... Uh, the Microsoft Cognitive Services, uh, specifically the Language Understanding API, which is at Lewis, L-U-I-S dot A-I. And it's just a ton of fun to work with. There's a really fun free tier and you can do really cool things with it. I actually have released a, a code pen that demos it pretty well if you want to go play around with it. So yeah, those are my two quick picks. Fantastic stuff. Thanks again for spending your time with us, Brian. We are so looking forward to seeing you at Fluent and all the rest of you listening in. We'll see you June 11th through the 14th in San Jose.